So I'm going to start uh, with someone else's words. The title of this uh, is just Big Hair Rock Fills. The subtitle's not important. Consider the hummingbird for a long moment. A hummingbird's heart beats 10 times a second. A hummingbird's heart is the size of a pencil eraser. A hummingbird's heart is a lot of the hummingbird. Joyous Valadoris, flying jewels, the first white explorers in the Americas called them, and the white men had never seen such creatures. For hummingbirds came into the world only in the Americas, nowhere else in the universe, more than 300 species of them, whirring and zooming and nectaring in Hummer time zones nine times removed from ours, their hearts hammering faster than we could clearly hear if we pressed our elephantine ears to their infinitesimal chests. Each one visits a thousand flowers a day. They can dive at 60 miles an hour, they can fly backward, they can fly more than 500 miles without pausing to rest. But when they rest, they come close to death. On frigid nights or when they are starving, they retreat into torpor, their metabolic rate slowing to a 15th of their normal sleep rate, their hearts sludging nearly to a halt, barely beating. And if they are not soon warmed, if they do not soon find that which is sweet, their hearts grow cold and they cease to be. Consider for a moment those hummingbirds who did not open their eyes today this very, oh, I have to go back a second. I'm sorry, this would have been cooler if it had worked. Consider for a moment those hummingbirds who did not open their eyes again today this very day in the Americas, bearded helmet crests and booted racket tails, violet-tailed sylphs and violet-capped wood nymphs, crimson topazes and purple-crowned fairies, red-tailed comets and amethyst wood stars, rainbow-bearded thornbills and glittering-bellied emeralds, velvet-purple coronets and golden-bellied star frontlets, fiery-tailed all-bills and Andean hill stars, spatula tails and puff legs, each the most amazing thing you have never seen, each thunderous wild heart the size of an infant's fingernail, each mad heart silent, a brilliant music stilled. Hummingbirds, like all flying birds, but more so, have incredible, enormous, immense, ferocious metabolisms. To drive those metabolisms, they have race car hearts that eat oxygen at an eye-popping rate. Their hearts are built of thinner, leaner fibers than ours. Their arteries are stiffer and more taut. They have more mitochondria in their heart muscles, anything to gulp more oxygen. Their hearts are stripped to the skin for the war against gravity and inertia, the mad search for food, the insane idea of flight. The price of their ambition is a life closer to death. They suffer more heart attacks and aneurysms and ruptures than any other living creature. It's expensive to fly. You burn out. You fry the machine. You melt the engine. Every creature on Earth has approximately two billion heartbeats to spend in a lifetime. You can spend them slowly, like a tortoise, and live to be 200 years old, or you can spend them fast, like a hummingbird, and live to be two years old. The biggest heart in the world is inside the blue whale. It weighs more than seven tons. It's as big as a room. It is a room with four chambers. A child could walk around in it head high, bending only to step through the valves. The valves are as big as the swinging doors in a saloon. This house of a heart drives a creature 100 feet long. When this creature is born, it is 20 feet long and weighs four tons. It is way bigger than your car. 
It drinks 100 gallons of milk from its mama every day and gains 200 pounds a day. And when it is seven or eight years old, it endures an unimaginable puberty. And then it essentially disappears from human ken. For next to nothing is known of the mating habits, travel patterns, diet, social life, language, social structure, diseases, spirituality, wars, stories, despairs, and arts of the blue whale. There are perhaps 10,000 blue whales in the world living in every ocean on earth. And of the largest mammal who ever lived, we know nearly nothing. But we know this. The animals with the largest hearts in the world generally travel in pairs, and their penetrating moaning cries, their piercing yearning tongue, can be heard underwater for miles and miles. Mammals and hearts have, have uh, mammals and birds have hearts with four chambers. Reptiles and turtles have hearts with three chambers. Fish have hearts with two chambers. Insects and mollusks have hearts with one chamber. Worms have hearts with one chamber, although they may have as many as 11 single-chambered hearts. Unicellular bacteria have no hearts at all, but even they have fluid eternally in motion, washing from one side of the cell to the other, swirling and whirling. No living being is without interior liquid motion. We all churn inside. So much held in a heart in a lifetime, so much held in a heart in a day, an hour, a moment. We are utterly open with no one in the end, not mother and father, not wife or husband, not lover, not child, not friend. We open windows to each, but we live alone in the house of the heart. Perhaps we must. Perhaps we could not bear to be so naked for fear of a constantly harrowed heart. When young, we think there will come one person who will savor and sustain us always. When we are older, we know this is the dream of a child, that all hearts finally are bruised and scarred, scored and torn, repaired by time and will, patched by force of character, yet fragile and rickety forevermore. No matter how ferocious the defense and how many bricks you bring to the wall, you can brick up your heart as stout and tight and hard and cold and impregnable as you possibly can. It down it comes in an instant, felled by a woman's second glance, a child's apple breath, the shatter of glass in the road, the words, I have something to tell you, a cat with a broken spine dragging itself into the forest to die, the brush of your mother's papery ancient hand in the thicket of your hair, the memory of your father's voice early in the morning, echoing from the kitchen where he is making pancakes for his children. That's Joyous Valadoris by the gone-too-soon Brian Doyle, writing through the layered meanings of heart, accessing a deep know about heartache and heartbreak and paternal fear in this glorious, understated, gleaming jewel of a piece. As is made clear in the longer version of the essay, included in his collection, The Wet Engine, this essay is about a particular event. The collection is Doyle writing about his young son's open heart surgery, is about a heart defect, and the reckoning he faces while waiting out surgery and recovery and the existential crisis of a parent worried about the possible death of a child. The good news, the child, Liam, does not die, still lives to this day. 
which is unfortunately not the case for Doyle, who left us just last year as the result of an aggressive brain tumor. Of the two versions of Joyous Volodorus, I greatly prefer the shorter one I just read, which is also the version that appeared in the American Scholar and later the 2005 Best American Essays. I teach it all the time, usually as a way to kick off a semester, often to get newbies thinking about how creative nonfiction works as a genre of figurative power and not just as the stenography of life as it happened. The longer version of the essay is a more particularized version, addresses Liam's heart medicine and the poisonous foxglove plant from which it is derived, and is ultimately very much about a heart condition and a situation, whereas the shorter version is about all of our conditions as hearted animals. No living being is without interior liquid motion. We all churn inside. The shorter, more oblique version of the essay transcends the specific, indeed uses the specific as a way into something deeper, into that notion of the generalized, the so-called human condition, winds up being about a feeling and not just a thing. Because for me, and I hope for you, the power of creative nonfiction is to fully link things and feelings, to be always simultaneously about a specific concrete object or moment or what have you, and about the ineffable. The power really lies in the ineffable. So I'm here today to talk about emotional shift in creative nonfiction, to speak about how one of the greatest powers of the nonfiction ear is to apply structure to experience as a way to target our attention toward the ineffable. Yes, we can tell our stories straight ahead, and some stories work out well that way. More often, we find greater power in artistic manipulation. We stay with the truth, always so and fully so. Don't mistake me for one of those who will defend the massaging of truth or cheating in nonfiction. But we find a proper vessel to hold the truth. In part, this is because we recognize that linear narrative holds no claim to rightness as an organizer of thought or reality. Linear narrative is just a different contention, that, or convention, that of story or the kind of story we are most familiar with. Through the lens of story, our lives appear to work in a linear fashion with the ever-turning calendar, the ticking of clock hands, all of these measurements of progression. But we live instead within the synapses of our brains where linearity breaks down, where the scent of a particular cassette tape can transport me back to ninth grade and the back of a coach bus visiting the offices of a Pittsburgh newspaper on a school trip and where the view of a certain landscape connects, me with, connects within me to a memory I didn't even know I could recall. You know the drill. In our brains, we can be in two places, even two times in the same instant. Essays seek to write about that and not just about what happened. Structure is as infinite and unruly as life, but today I'll address five that I see working in essays in very different ways. The build and shift, the front load, the surprise entrance, the unbalanced stumble fix, and the polyrhythmic rubber foot. <laughs> and I'll do this by making a case for the rock and roll drummers as a way to orally think about or sense the structure of essays. They might be giants, sing about this, how the drummer is the heart of the band, how without the drummer we're all kind of lost in just listening to notes that slump to the floor like a skin without a skeleton. Rhythm matters. 
poets know rhythm, of course. It's how lines are built and enjambment functions and syntax and diction are deployed carefully. But for prose writers, too, and for rock and rollers, the and I think prose writers are rock and rollers. I think that goes together. The rhythm section holds up a band, a story, an essay, and without it, and without, in particular, the stabilizing thumps of the drummer, the band story, essay, poem gets lost, and the listener-reader wanders away to do something else except for all those songs that exist without a drummer and work so well, but which I think still require a deep sense of rhythm on the part of the performers to create the skeleton within the bone. The drummer exists in its absence. Back to nonfiction, the most direct of my topics today, essays are a way to narrate the experience of recollection as much as to recount the experience of living. We know there are multiple selves in even the most personal memoir. There is the I who lived it and the I who writes it. Plus, there are a whole slew of other eyes strewn throughout any given essay or memoir, characterized perfectly by Mark Doty in his meta-nonfiction Return to Sender, in which he describes memoir as a lighthouse. The experience is the central core of that tower, and the writer moving always along the spiral staircase that encircles that core. At each step, the view is a little different. The perspective has shifted, so the meaning changes, even as the reality, the truth, is stable. The eye is just viewing experience from a different point, is indeed a different eye altogether. Any piece of creative nonfiction has written within it multiple versions of a, scalf, a self scattered along different rungs of the staircase. So hummingbirds and facts about the animal kingdom and a growing sense as we read or listen to Joyous Valadoris that something is up. The language hooks us, that rollicking beat that is Brian Doyle, and jamming and breathlessness and image, but the facts too seem to be accruing towards something unclear. This isn't just hummingbirds, you might say, but for quite a while you don't really know what's up. It just is. There's a build, a long build, a sense that this must be going somewhere, right? And then... <laughs> so much held in a heart in a lifetime. So much held in a heart, in a day, an hour, a moment. The strike, the emotional shift that releases the tension built by the language and clarifies the point of all this, the why of the essay resolving into a deep melancholy of longing, loss, regret, of things almost gone but not quite, or the fear of that, this being the emotion that lies at the center of the actual lived experience of Doyle, his son hanging in the balance and transformed into the essayistic center of a story that is about all of our lives and how we all hang constantly in that balance. Hummingbirds matter, but chiefly as a way to give image to the feelings revealed in the final section of the essay. My voice catches when I read the end of Joyous Valadoris almost every time, and that's because of the power of Doyle's structure. Today I'm calling that in a deeply creative way the build and shift. It is a technique of layering that holds off until late in the piece the resolving image. The language pulses forward, tensions growing, but often the tensions aren't exactly the tension of the essay. The author misdirects, sort of, uses the inherent arcs of oblique material, hummingbird hearts sludging over, blue whales crying plaintively, to establish a sense of the essay that can be intuited but not quite pinpointed until suddenly, There it is. Everything changes in the essay once the shift occurs, the build now clear in what it was actually building toward. 
The entirety of the essay is transformed through the inclusion of the new material late, teaches the reader how to have read what preceded the shift. We start to understand how describing a hummingbird heart as the size of an infant's fingernail matters, and how describing a blue whale's heart as large enough for a child to climb through matters. Layers emerge instantaneously for the direct and indirect content of the nonfiction. Phil Collins, something in the air tonight, works as a pretty clear and over-obvious example of the build and shift. That's part of the point of the analogies I'm spinning today like a disc jockey. That's not a lot of subtlety, and there isn't much in those big act bands. But there is a tremendous amount of artistry and bundles of effectiveness, along with a heavy dose of clarity to how they use sound to drive a listener along an emotional arc to signal with the arrival of the beat that the song is shifting. Something in the air tonight relies on atmospheric vibes, a haunting synthesizer growth that progresses but doesn't seem to reconcile until it does, until those simple drums come in and release or transform the tension of the voice and instrumentation. That's an essay, right? That's Joyous Valadoris finally revealing that the essay is not about hearts, but is instead about the heart. Or it's Joanne Beard's Fourth State of Matter, one of our most anthologized pieces, included in Boys of My Youth, but often read in its individuality, partly because it remains painfully current, focusing as it does on a school shooting, the at the time shocking deaths of five in 1991 at the University of Iowa. We read and teach this essay because of that, I think, but also because Beard organizes material so well, structures impossible events to create an improbably powerful impact, improbable because the essay is not just about the shooting. Much of the brilliance of Fourth State of Matter emerges in the way that Beard writes a slow burn that looks mostly away from the shooting, emphasizing several other tragedies of her life, a dying dog, a collapsing marriage, squirrels in her attic. In the meantime, she builds her relationship with the men who will be shot, with particular focus on her friend, astrophysics professor Christopher Gertz. Though the shooting itself is heavily foreshadowed in the third paragraph, guys whose lives are ticking like alarm clocks ready to go off, although none of us is aware of it yet, Beard holds off on men even mentioning the shooting for quite a long time, not until the 14th page of the essay. Friday, after seminar, everyone is glazed over, listening as someone explains something unexplainable at the head of the long table. Gong Lu stands up and leaves the room abruptly. Beard writes on in very direct, very clinical language to narrate the actual shootings, an almost matter-of-fact transcription of the actions of the shooter, the deaths themselves, the spare language in this section contrasting with the lushness of detail she deploys elsewhere in the essay. This brutal section is only three paragraphs, and of course it changes everything. As a first-time reader, my students report this every semester I teach it, we are shocked by what happens. The violence on the page in an essay that begins and seems to be mostly about a geriatric dog that Beard is trying to tend to. But several students also always recognize that they shouldn't have been surprised. The build is masterful and the suspense gesturing toward something. 
It's too simplistic to say it this way, but it's true. Beard writes the essay so the shooting hits on the page in a fashion analogous to the shock she would have felt, an interruption into a life. That's too pat, of course, but also part of the structural point. Beard would know that a shooting overtakes everything else in an essay. And if she wants a piece to be about more than that, she needs to be careful to defuse its potential power, and she does so by delaying its arrival. This is how structure gives form to meaning, how she deploys the build and shift to keep the reader feeling a change is coming, but also directs their eyes away until they have to look. The build prepares us for that which defies preparation. It is inevitable, even as it is surprising, the tension of the essay releasing at the point of shift very much because the emotion of this section is downplayed. That brings the life lived and the ones narrated into greater relief, instead of only eclipsing it all with the act of violence. Structure lets Beard write about life in the wake of a shooting, a shockwave that moves forward and backward in time because the violence itself is used as a way to shift emotion in the essay instead of existing as the essay itself. Bear with me now while I take the time to read the entire first chapter of a memoir. This comes from Lauren Slater's provocatively titled Lying, a Metaphorical Memoir. Normally, I'd paraphrase instead of reading an entire chapter, what with the limitations of time, but this chapter is ultimately irreducible. Chapter one, I exaggerate. That's it. The entire first chapter, the entry point, that's intended as are all opening moments of all pieces of writing as a way to teach the reader how to read the material still to come. I exaggerate, or let me put it this way. The opening riff of Two Princes prepares the listener for the song is a declaration of purpose for a tune that will unfold with persistent kicking snare drum, relentlessly driving two and four for each measure, and that maintains a more or less constant emotional register of up. So it is with Lauren Slater's lying. She's giving away the shtick of the book with that first chapter. Well, she gave it away even before that with the title itself. Lying is a performance of hyper-honest memoir delivered through the constant repetition of an elaborate lie. The memoir is about falseness itself, is about the truth of deceit in the context of mental illness and that which is ultimately unspeakable. It is about foregrounding instead of concealing the deceit of our understanding of mental illness. As a structural choice, this front-load technique begins with the deepest tension of the writing laid out from the start. It is the inverse of the build and shift, which puts off the telling until late and through revelation transforms power. The front load offers apparent revelation as the starting point, then writes on to develop the comprehension of that revelation. Beth Peterson's glaciology offers a fine example. I'm reading here from the very beginning. It's quiet on the glacier, and not the good kind of quiet. It's the long quiet, the quiet that splits you open, leaves you flayed. I try yelling, Matt, Adam, Lydia, help, nothing. 
only low rumblings in the distance and the faint sound of water running, probably rainwater or melted snow dripping through thin tears in the ice, pushing downward, drips becoming streams, streams becoming wide rivers of glacial runoff, pouring down the base of the mountain, splitting into the glacial valley, cascading into the Atlantic Ocean. When my eyes adjust to the semi-darkness of the crevasse, I size up the hole. I'm hanging midway between parallel walls of raw ice, thick and slanted and buckling in places. Peterson preloads the tension of her essay that she's fallen into a crevasse and is hanging there. That's the grounding of the narrative, the most present present, but also the highest point of external tension. In a linear narrative, this is either the deepest conflict of the arc, I'm in a hole and need to get out, or the climax itself, then I fell into a hole, the end. For the literal walking on a glacier action of this particular essay, the fall lies almost at the end of the storyline, since the essay is about falling in and not a Reader's Digest drama in real life that offers a story of the rescue. The opening of the essay is also the moment when Peterson, the experiential Peterson, is at greatest literal peril, dangling on the end of her rope in a crack in the ice. Yet, since this is nonfiction, we of course know that she gets out. That's clear enough since the implicit contract of nonfiction is that the writer wrote it. So unless Peterson punched out the essay on her cell phone, then chucked it over the ledge as a friend right before the rope snapped and she plunged to her doom, she had to escape the predicament in order to produce the document we're reading. So as a result, the traditional dynamic of a linear progression to a fall, what will happen, has a different, perhaps less authentic drama for an essay. We already know she doesn't die. And again, the essay isn't about the rescue. Instead, is it, about, it is about Peterson understanding differently. The fall is, well, a metaphor for a changing relationship to factuality and climate change, to her own interest in those famous Arctic self-demisers, lemmings. Peterson creates braids between the narrative of her fall into the crevasse with investigation into the biology of lemmings as a way to explore the falsity of predetermined climate narratives. The linearity of Peterson's journey doesn't serve this purpose, even though the crevasse is without a doubt the most dramatic plot element of the situation of the essay. I'm refing Vivian Gornick here, her important distinction between situation and story, between ground action and true meaning. The problem for Peterson would be in writing an essay that relies on the arc of the fall as the structural backbone. That would imply a primacy to the event, which she wisely, if perhaps counterintuitively, deflates by starting with the event. Since it seems like the most important point and is the most important and vibrant plot point, starting with the highest moment of drama lets her write back toward the event itself as a way to write through the meaning of the fall. On the seventh page of the essay, Peterson catches up to the narrative linearity of the beginning and falls again. The ground had collapsed beneath me. I was tumbling through the snow as if it were a lake in a summer day and I was a bird somersaulting under. I hit the bottom of the snowpack and went through. The top layer of snow was gone, only sticking to me in wet clumps. I was falling, dropping like ice in a glass, like a stone in a river, clear, narrow, rushing, caught up in the motion or the feeling of motion, 
Motion without action, without intention, just distance and gestures. What we see here is the magical doubling of reflective language, like an infinite regression in a mirror. We understand by this point in the essay that she is writing about falling and falling, that the ground collapsing around her is literal snow and figurative comprehension of the dynamics of her own understanding. By beginning immediately after the highest drama of the essay and by completely front-loading the emotional peril of the essay, she drives the reader's tension toward a reconciliation of that fall. In so doing, she creates the space to transform the literal into a doubly literal figurative. That's the same move that Slater offers by opening with, I exaggerate. The structural choice of preloading the highest drama is one way to avoid the tyranny of linear experience and instead artistically transform experience into a deeper knowing. For Peterson, the ground collapses. Snowpack shatters and there is an opening beneath, but structurally this has happened after considerable discussion of the lemmings, which is to say after a considerable presentation of their myth related to their facts. Lemmings are a metaphor that exists before we make it, which is to say they are a cliché. But Peterson explains to the reader that lemmings aren't dumbly jumping over cliffs as we all kind of think, that they were instead once more or less thrown over the cliffs by people making a famous film, which we probably don't even know about, but that still governors our faulty understanding of their behavior. Peterson turns other facts also. Biologists, she informs us, once thought lemming populations crashed because cold snaps limited food access, thus leading to starvation, this dying off a different kind of dramatic demise than the flinging from cliffs kind, but still important in the context of understanding population boom-bust cycles. But scientists have since discovered that the warmer the Arctic gets, the worse the fate for lemmings, even though we might not see the same dramatic volume of death. See the doubled metaphor again? The literal cliff drops overlain by the population graph spikes. Each of these its own miscomprehension, an expected dramatic outcome not unlike, say, a rope snapping and a dangling ice climber plunging to her death. The truth is less dramatic, but more dire. Rising temperatures make it hard for lemmings to tunnel beneath snow and get their food, so the spike of population booms and crashes is gone. But the lemmings are also facing a more stable fate of not being alive. As Peterson writes, the fall of lemming deaths also means a fall of lemming peaks. The lack of deaths signals a lack of life. She also writes this, the same rising temperatures that crack ice, fracture glaciers, create crevasses, put both lemmings and, well, her at risk, which is to say that her literal conflict point and their scientific conflict point are very much identical. And that's when Peterson falls in the essay. Her literal plunge through the snow crust happening just as we understand that she's been intellectually hanging out in peril the whole time that we have all been in the figurative crevasse the whole time, that the preloaded sense of what dangling in a crevasse, wondering if you'll fall in, is somehow both the most dramatic and least important moment of the essay. Sometime later, sorry, sometime later, a friend would ask me why, I, I always jump the drummer, uh, 
Sorry, drummers. Sometime later, a friend would ask me why, after the day on the glacier, I began to care so much about lemmings. By the time I thought of something to say, we were no longer standing outside in the same cold dawn. You see, I had once imagined myself constructing an alternate life in Norway, painting houses, buying groceries at the local shop, walking along the green coastline, watching the early morning light sweep up the cool, wet night. It was a measured life, a controlled life, and not a real one. There is no night in the summertime in Norway, though sometimes the afternoon light all at once is blinding. She writes this in the penultimate section of the essay, that point when we often deliver our strongest, most transformative reflective material, our hinge. This clarifies that her life hung in the balance in Norway, that she had already fallen or was living in the condition of being ready to fall. Her structure allows her to begin with a point of literal conflict as a way to build an essay that finds intellectual tension in constructing a way through the comprehension of the figurative aspects represented in the literal concrete peril. The final section of the essay is Peterson being hauled out of the crevasse, an outcome we narratively desire even though we knew it would come. It has to be there, but we don't actually need to see much of it. We do need to see this. The front load structure lets us see her rescue as a moment of alteration, that the authorial Peterson is hauling her experiential self from that crack in the glacier as a changed being able to clearly see. And remember her opening lines, it's quiet on the glacier and not the good kind of quiet. It's the long quiet, the quiet that splits you open, leaves you flayed. That's how we start the essay, which is really also how we end it, the literal and figurative exquisitely linked, an essay that starts with the here and writes through the how I got here. Henderson, uh, Harrison Candelaria Fletcher's The Beautiful City of Tirza begins with a line that might seem like a front load. Animals arrive after my father dies. There's a lot in that moment, and for sure he does kick off this essay and indeed the entirety of his brilliant collection, Descanso for My Father, with a brief sentence clarifying his main thematic material, a dead father who Harrison hardly knew and who he longs to reassemble through the collecting of artifacts and memory. Tirza narrates the discovery of an orphaned owl by Fletcher's older brother, the son who knew the father and who has a firmer grasp on the significance of his loss. Fletcher writes the essay from the perspective of himself as a young boy, struggling to know this owl, another creature that the rest of the family seems to connect with. Fletcher pets the owl only once with the tip of a pencil, always slightly removed from contact. The essay is charming, magical and melancholy with a heavy note of significance beneath the surface. There is some build and shift to it. We know something's up, but that knowing is never exactly mentioned, not directly. This appears to be an essay about the owl, a story that will itself end tragically with an accidental drowning. Tears are weakened by the breakfast meat the family feeds it. And really, the essay can be described as being only about Tirza, about the finding, raising, loving, and untimely demise of a creature treated as a pet when it was, in fact, a wild hunter. Fletcher turns the essay, though, about two-thirds of the way through. A new meaningfulness emerges, along with it a declaration of purpose for the undertones of the essay and for the remainder of the collection to follow. Structure matters here, too, even at the smallest level. Good collections are much more than a sequence of separate essays. Tirza goes missing somewhat often, and the family has learned that she has taken to hiding in a closet during the light of day. 
We're not supposed to disturb the relics inside. The old photos, packaged artwork in mothballed, uni mothballed uniforms, dusty pharmaceutical journals, and broken ham radio gear once belonging to her father. We try to shoo Tirza away, but she won't budge. She will only stare into the cool abyss. After a moment, she lowers her head and hops inside. From then on, the hall closet becomes her sanctuary. To fetch her, I must reach into the darkness, brushing my father's things. And that's the essay right there, the discovery and release of the emotional tension of the piece with that single line. To fetch her, I must reach into the darkness, brushing my father's things. Here, meaningfulness enters at a surprising moment, on the beat, but not as we would expect, not on the downbeat. The owl is a vehicle for discovery, an animated recognition of the wound Harrison is writing through. The doubleness of the metaphorical stacks upon the literal emerges from that darkness, the word and the notion. This is how we find and make use of metaphor in a life. As the essay reveals later, an owl is just an owl. How we see it, that's the job of the essayist. The surprise of the essay is the location, the unfolding of meaning, that grasping hand of the young Harrison brushing his father's things to fetch the owl, which has been for everyone in the essay a stand-in for the dead father all along. <laughs> it's those, that snare beat on the three and four that I'm talking about there. Tension revealed as we expect is narratively satisfying, but tension released not quite as we expect is exhilarating. Such is the power of the surprise entrance. Just when we've settled into a groove, think we know where an essay is going, a deft writer hits the emotional snare just askance, I like that pun, tells the rhythm slant, perhaps, and makes us perk up and notice. In a song, in an essay, we become seduced by the tonality are listening to the music, begin to understand and therefore intuit where everything is going. By tossing in a little sideways motion, motion just a touch of the off-kilter, an essayist like Harrison, Harrison Candelaria Fletcher can maintain the vibe of a piece that will remain ever just a story, but with a flourish that helps the casual reader feel, and the careful reader deeply comprehend the situation that animates the story. Think about the weakness of this essay if there had ever been a line like, I miss my dad. And think about how much power would have leaked from the narrative of Tirza if Fletcher had uttered those words early on and directly, the owl made me miss my dad. Instead, he gives us that little John Bonham flicker, pushes us just to the side so we can see the story with new eyes. Jericho Parms makes this move even more dramatically in the lyric essay, Still Life with Chair, part of her, and I can't recommend this book enough, incendiary collection lost wax. This essay collages toward an inevitable conclusion which is clear enough even by reading just the first lines of several of the accruing sections. The essay begins, lately I've been going batty at the thought of stillness. She offers then a meditation on stillness before including white space and moving to another subject, then another, then another. I'm going to read just a few first lines from these sections, cutting out the development that follows. I stood among the boys who had clustered in a huddle of Oxfords and low-slung jeans in a second-story room at a campus house party. I've been trying to find order in the disorder of memory. Chair, a seat with support for the back designed to accommodate one person. 
Early evidence of chairs dates to 2680 BC in ancient Egypt where cave paintings, carvings, and hieroglyphics depicted seated figures. Consider, Ben continued, did someone just get up or is someone about to sit down? Maybe it's a riddle after all. Why do we remember certain details? Given the chance, the more sober-minded would probably have known better or foreseen the danger that night. And by now the reader and you, having only the benefit of the section leading sentences I've chosen, have a sense of where this essay is going, or think you do. There's a clear theme or motif or implication. We've been spending time at a college party with a narrator, a woman, describing the pretentious conversations of that guy who, depending on the era, is either wearing a beret or, since this is the 1990s, a newsboy cap. <laughs> There's another that guy, and they're together pontificating about the meaningfulness of art in a way that probably calls to mind for all of us someone in our past who sat in a philosophy class we took who felt himself at least slightly more competent and brilliant than anyone else in that room. There's literally even this quoted line from him. Come, he said, we could use a feminine eye. We sense the danger. <laughs> what could happen? This would seem like the place for a drum entrance as more sober and danger add clarity to the stakes of the essay, but this is only a preliminary lick, an on-beat flourish that keeps us in step with where we think the essay is headed because these lines connect the material we've been seeing in a way we probably anticipate. Later that night, as Joe and I walked east, away from the mountains, he explained the tradition of exploring the catacombs of campus, a grid of utility tunnels nested below school grounds, Parms writes. Then on through several more collage entries about the philosophy of chairs, Vincent Van Gogh, a second grade crush who pulled a chair out from beneath her, Andy Warhol, a line about how it is difficult to find in language a worthy match for the euphoria of being young and high and falling in love, then a grounding back to the now of the authorial palms, she sitting in a chair by a window thinking, as I picked myself up, the sound of my chair against the floor must have startled the starlings outside. Death by electrocution can be, but is not always instantaneous. When Ben removed a manhole cover just north of the library and descended, not into the tunnels as intended, but into an unmarked electrical vault, did he know he'd stepped into an accident. His feet were firmly grounded when his hand touched a live wire, and I wonder if he felt the 8,000 volt current through his body. Did he think of his parents, his first love, of sex or light bulbs, of leaves and lightning, of the Rosenbergs, of Warhol, or was there nothing at all but for the surge and the silence? Suddenly, this essay is not about what we think it was about. Yes, she writes of loss and violence in a life curtailed by tragic event, but the loss is an unprepared for death of a peripheral character, which introduces a release of the built tension in a direction far different than we had expected. The central wounding of the essay enters late, askance and powerfully so. This is what I wrestle with, she is telling us. Notably, Parm's emotional shift is different than a build and shift, such as Beard's, because the essay does not actually presage itself. 
the turn is a surprising entrance of new information, material that alters the layers that have been built before. Everything fits, but only because we suddenly realize with the entrance of this material that the drummer had control in a way we hadn't expected. One of my favorite analogies for the writing of an essay comes from Scott Russell Sanders about flushing rabbits and not knowing which way they'll go. And how the essayist more or less has to pick one and follow whatever ungainly, confusing, apparently nonsensical path it takes. That's a way to explain that writing an essay is often not about balance, certainly includes lots of moments that are conflicting and complex and unsettling and not quite fitting into the flow of what we think of as narrative. <laughs> the unbalanced stumble fix is a structure of confusion, is maybe the ideal aural analogy for the essayist or perhaps for the act of drafting, unbalanced stumble fix. How often we are confused, <laughs> writing in the dark, thinking we ought to probably just quit and do something easier like quantum physics, and then we write something, some passage that clicks the tumblers in exactly the right order, and there it is, cohesion. In Zeppelin's Black Dog, John Bonham provides a steady backbone for a song that plays multiple time signatures at the same time. His steady drive lets shape continue unabated, even while we feel the song riding off the rails. In fact, the disorientation of the structure is part of the point of what happens. The song knocks you off your feet so that you have to struggle to keep up, but that drumbeat is there to make sure you only wobble. Ryan Van Meter's To Bear to Carry, Notes on Faggot, from the impeccable If You Knew Then What I Know Now, addresses the complicated history application and self-loathing associated with this particular persistent epithet. Van Meter begins the essay with a direct story, apparently simple on the surface. A friend has been called faggot in the classroom by a student. Van Meter starts off with what might seem like pertinent information. My dear friend Tom wears eyeshadow. He also often pins brooches to his shirts just a few inches to the left of his skinny antique neckties. Van Meter then relays the story, reflects on how he has suffered the epithet in multiple instances over the years, how it always startles and paralyzes. I can't believe that's something we really have to deal with, I said, shaking my head, and my dear friend agreed. Then I asked him, what were you wearing? This, he said tugging the shoulder of his cardigan, wiggling his butterfly brooch. I mean, not that it matters. Right, he said. Later, I was bothered by my question, what were you wearing? Because it implied that the student might have had a good reason for saying faggot. Let's hear that one more time. 
I can't believe that's something we really have to deal with, I said, shaking my head, and my dear friend agreed. Then I asked him, what were you wearing? This, he said, tugging the shoulder of his cardigan, wiggling his butterfly brooch. I mean, not that it matters, right, he said. Later, I was bothered by my question, what were you wearing? Because it implied that the student might have had a good reason. This is the first stagger of the essay, a seemingly stable and direct opening that leaves the reader reeling. Because, I mean, isn't Van Meter writing the words he expects many readers to have already thought. Something about the way Tom was dressed, and not so much blaming him for his own abuse, but also looking for a reason or explanation for hatred. Van Meter indeed sets us up with that. He establishes the time signature of the essay with the opening description, but then he puts a 5-4 over a 4-4 when he asks the insensitive question himself and goes on to self-criticize the precise dynamic that he has anticipated and framed for the reader, which also serves as the credo for the inquiry that is this essay. Van Meter goes on to stack information upon itself, moving from a discussion of a childhood book called A Bundle of Sticks that, he had, been used, that had been used in his grade school to diffuse through faith and dictionary definitions, the word is a playground taunt, Van Meter writes that as only having given license for a freer use of the term, because of course, bullies could just say they were talking about sticks. Onward, Van Meter goes into etymology, presenting multiple definitions, which reign from the bassoon in French, to the bundle of sticks that were actually fuel for the burning of heretics, to the loops on the back of men's dress shirts, to Latin roots, grammars, insults, as the definitions accrue. We become more and more unbalanced, the words swirling in a controlled complexity so we don't know what's what. But I'm just not satisfied with the, convince, the coincidence that one word has so many violent connotations over several centuries without any connections, he writes, especially when I can string them together however naively. Then deep into the essay, after letting the reader wash around in this tumble of information, he makes a declaration that in its directness has appeared in neither this essay nor the collection. Maybe because I am a gay man, or maybe because I've never actually used the word against one, I realize I'm not even sure why we are called faggot. The power of this statement is the resolution of imbalance for now. Van Meter has kept the beat even as the guitars have rollicked this way and that so that he can deliver the solidifying language. I mean, we knew this about Van Meter, that he is a gay man writing what is essentially a memoir of his coming out as much as to himself as to anyone else. From early in this essay, his sexuality is clear, and in fact, from more or less the first page of the book, he declares himself as himself. It's not like Van Meter is hiding a revelation but he is holding on to the revelation of language, which is a way to keep us leaning toward it, ready to fall over, but not quite. He shoves us off balance, then steadies us with an authorial hand. Then as he does over and over again in this powerful searching essay, Van Meter kicks out the support. That's what Zeppelin's Black Dog does also, the mismatched section existing as the refrain, a normally stable, repetitive comfort zone in a piece of popular music. For Van Meter, his final return to unsettlement is his last narrative arc of the piece, a story of him leering at a man at a party and that man sneering the epithet right back at him. And Van Meter surprises us, the readers, by wondering, quote, if there are moments when gay men might actually deserve scorn at that party, 
leering at an obviously straight man, was I being a faggot? We're not ready for this as readers because we have long ago sided with Van Meter on the page and I hope in life, but he writes the complications so we cannot become complacent in self-congratulatory open-mindedness. No, his point is that words have power on us even when we know they shouldn't. In the penultimate section of this essay, the place where Van Meter is really good at offering the deepest push of his work, he presents the deepest narrative teeter. In the final section, he resolves this imbalance when he writes of the unsatisfying outcome of researching the stable meaning of an unstable curse. But even after what I've uncovered, I'm unsettled because words aren't simply good or evil, he writes. Would that it were that easy. The meter has shifted again here, and we're back into the place where we can't quite find our footing. So he has us, keeps his rock-steady snare going until the final lines. Like a recanting heretic, I'm the one complying with the word's hatred and allowing it to bear down on me again, the way it surely will until I harden myself against hearing it. Such a revelation is both startling and obvious, and I'm stuck here, bound up in that original trick of the word. When I wince at its sting, I share its intention, if only for a second. We're back in control, on stable footing, but also on footing that connects to the rhythms of the beginning, which we can now also see as supremely unsettled. Van Meter has written through the off-balanced inquiry to get us to a stable resolution, and that is, perhaps ironically, that easy resolution is impossible. We can't discard the word easily because this word drives deeply, has residence in historicity and multiplicity. We have to recognize the complexity if we ever are going to have a chance to break free, and we haven't. He hasn't. Not yet. Unsettledness is the state of being for memoir itself. The entire genre defined by the way it wrestles with the way life does not fit the narratives we expect. In Red Sky in the Morning, Patricia Hample recounts the story of seeing a beautiful young man next to an older, less attractive one, a woman, one who heaved herself into the seat as if she were used to hoisting sacks of potatoes onto the flatbed of a pickup. The twist of the anecdote is that the woman knowingly reveals to Hample that the beautiful man is not her son, is her husband and implies that people see and misconstrue this all the time. The line that Hampel hangs on, though, is this. Oh, she let out a profound sigh as if she mined her truth from the bountiful, bulky earth. Oh, I could tell you stories. It's the could that Hampel cares about, the conditionality of this, and that, in fact, the woman does not tell her stories. This is the unsettlement, the off-kilter rollick. That's memoir. Campbell writes, whatever expectation lies tangled within its seductive promise remains forever balled up in the wooly impossibility of telling the truth, the whole truth of a life, any life. Memoirists, unlike fiction writers, do not really want to tell a story. They want to tell it all. The all of personal experience, of conscience, consciousness itself. Memoirists wish to tell their mind, not their story. More to the point, the wistfulness implicit in that conditional verb, I could tell, 
conveys an urge more primitive than a storyteller's search for an audience. It betrays not a loneliness for someone who will listen, but a hopelessness about language itself and a sad recognition of its limitations. How much reality can subject-verb-object bear on the frail shoulders of the sentence? The sigh within the statement is more like this, if I could tell you stories, if only stories could tell what I have in me to tell. For this reason, autobiographical writing is bedeviled. It is caught in a self which must become a world and not, please, a narcissistic world. I suppose what Hample is really saying that each life is unhinged rhythmically. There is no sense, no linearity, which is the stuff of plot in story building instead of experience. We live so we are unbalanced always. The job of the memoirist is to become the stabilizing John Bonham here, to keep the beat through construction, to confirm for the reader that stability is coming. Don't worry, we got you. Listen to me. Listen hard. There it is. The resolution of this moment of tipping, which also presages the next moment when we get knocked off kilter again, because we always will. Is it any wonder, then, that contemporary memoirists and non-fictioneers of all sorts have been turning more and more to collage, to complex braiding and non-linear form, to fracture in all its facets? If the world can't be presumed to exist with a pleasant stability, maybe the way forward is to use instability as the guiding principle. I'm thinking of Lily Wong's A Bestiary here, a memoir built of chunks. They appear as disjointed short sections, anecdotes, perhaps trivia, fairy tales, but there are also repeating themes. Rats, a dead sister, drug addiction. In the chapter on the rat race, the playing of puzzle games, jade bracelets that are painful to put on. Games are not necessarily about victory. The process of learning requires failure, she writes. Perhaps the process of applying structure to life to venture into memoir demands that we constantly face the way narratives fail, that our stories must resist pre-established structures, at least as authentic ways of telling our lives, because that linearity may lead us toward our gravest sin, falsity. In Bestiary, or in books like Maggie Nelson's Bluets or Claudia Rankin's Citizen, Therese Mayo's Heartberries, some of the high-wire braids of Brenda Miller, Anne Carson, Annie Dillard, on and on, the structural control of the essayist takes on the form of what I'm calling the polyrhythmic rubberfoot. In work built around fractures, in the subgenre of exciting and formally inventive nonfiction, the strands of controlled are layered beat upon beat to keep us aware of the constant cacophony of sound. Listen to what John Bonham is up to in Bonzo's Montro, how the drumming is both steady and complex, a jumble, a controlled jumble an ecstasy of sound image, just as a bestiary is full of lushness, of muchness, of everything that keeps circling its themes as a way to develop them, not through the imposition of a narrative, but instead the discovery of a pattern, a bad relationship, toxic really, rats as cultural artifact and test subject, the resolution of a dead sister who the author herself can't quite live up to. Perhaps this is why we collage. 
not to shoehorn experience into an ill-fitting narrative, but instead to set images, break them, resolve them, imagine them differently, put into conversation apparently disconnected images whose development leads not to cacophony, but to beautiful music, controlled at all times by the steady rhythm and control of an essayist, recognizing instead of demanding the shape of our lives, so that, yes, we can tell stories and we can find their structure, make choices about how we apply our vision to tell them the best way we can to ourselves as much as to our readers. I don't know. I kind of want to let John Bonzo play, or John Bonham play, but it, it takes a while. All right. I'll put it down low. Uh, do you guys have any questions? Even what the five words are, Jesse, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to, can you recap in terms of, because I love to do structure, and I love yeah. the idea of like naming it, and if you could sort of recap what exactly are the structures you're naming, which essays yeah. fall under that, and maybe because I'm dumb about drumming, how exactly, like rubber foot, whatever, like how exactly that metaphor is working. Yeah, okay, yeah. So I'll start at the back with, uh, with John Bonham, who they called rubber foot, because he, he could play these unbelievable fast bass drum licks with one drum. Yeah, Doug's back giving a fist pump. Like Neil Peart sucks, because Neil Peart <laughs> needed two bass drums to make this happen. So Neil Peart was going boom, 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 and John Bonham was doing that with one foot, which I don't know. Yeah. yeah, Neil Peart has his own. This was like my high school argument. Who's better, Neil Peart or John Bonham, man? Like, well, who aspirated in his own vomit? Maybe that's part of uh, how, how we might get to the, the truth of that. So the polyrhythmic uh, rubber foot is this way that John Bonham uh, is able to create these polyrhythms. So we've got multiple beats happening at the same time, but we're still connected in some way to the steady pulse of the piece. So um, this, this solo, Bonzo's Montro, I'm linking to lots of collage lyric essays because like when you're reading, and I think if you read the excerpt from Lily Wong, it holds together but it's kind of confusing. And it gets better as the book gets more confusing. Because the book does this more and more as you move through, and this is kind of the opening. And it's when you start to hear those repetitions coming back that you start to be more comfortable and trust the drummer that'll come in. And so if you love Led Zeppelin, you've trusted Bonzo by the time he's gotten to this drum solo because he's been playing for many years. And so you know that he'll get you back. So then before that, number four, which is the unbalanced stumble fix, that's that idea of balancing two time signatures on top of each other so that the band is playing in a steady, traditional rock and roll 4-4. Four, four. Actually, I'm sorry, it's the reverse. It's um, Bonham that's playing in the steady 4-4, four, four. and the band is playing in a different time signature over top of it, so their downbeats are not connecting with his. And so we sort of uh, get a little bit off kilter um, because of what's happening, and then it resolves because the drummer's been there. So the, the essays that I linked there were Ryan Van Meter's To Bear To Carry, um, and Patricia Hample, Red Sky in the Morning, which is sort of meta about the art of memoir. I think structurally Van Meter is the best example of that because Van Meter keeps shoving us in that essay. And it's uh, a heartbreaking essay because you think you got it and then he punches you and so then you're rollicking but you understand that he's the drummer back there with the beat and he's in complete control. So number three was the surprise entrance. Um, which might be a subset of the build and shift, 
But what I'm thinking, this was Bonham coming in. Uh, there's actually a longer intro to that song that I didn't play, most of you would know, um, that changes from uh, kind of a rhythm and blues guitar into the whack, whack. And it's that whack, whack that you would think that he would enter in the next beat or in the next measure. And so he's entering a little bit earlier than you think um, so that you're like, what? What was that? And it cues you into what's going to continue. So the two essays there, um, Jericho Parham, Still Life with Chair, and Harrison Candelaria Fletcher's Beautiful City of Tearsaw, both of those rely on a surprising shift late. And it's not, um, not an inevitable shift. It's the idea that you've gotten used to the owl as an interesting object in the essay for Tearsaw, and then suddenly there's this one line of almost reflection from Fletcher where he's saying, I reached in to touch my father's things. And you recognize that as a deeply figurative line. Uh, and that's the drummer coming in and saying, boom, boom, here's new information. Um, and then uh, similarly with Jericho Parms, that idea that, I mean, when I read it the first time, and the first time I taught it to undergraduates, they read it too. We thought that this was uh, going to resolve as uh, an assault essay. Uh, it seemed like it was fitting all of those standards. And then she entered into a different way, and um, it changes everything. It unfolds. Number two was the front load. Um, and it took me a long time to figure out who uh, I wanted to use as a musical example for that. So I used the Spin Doctors because it's kind of happy. Uh, I also was going to use Michael Jackson, um, Billie Jean. There's a lot of, of good examples of it. But this would be the idea of essayists saying, I'm not going to hold off on my most dramatic material. I'm going to give it to you from the beginning. So the two references there um, were Lauren Slater's Lying and Beth Peterson's Glaciology, where the highest um, drama is there. And so that we're actually, it's in some ways almost like Pulp Fiction, that we're having to write back to before it so we can catch up to the drama. Uh, and for me, what that does is um, it prevents us from uh, getting too stuck in that linearity, the idea that the external matters. And so the external is just a vehicle. And then the build and shift uh, is that moody build. And probably, uh, well, both of them are great, both Doyle's and Joanne Beard's. Maybe Doyle's more than Joanne Beard. The idea that when you're reading this, you love it, but you're like, oh, these are beautiful images about hummingbirds and hearts. And then I actually didn't get my timing right when I read that part, um, so I apologize. The, the actual shift is when he says, so much held in a heart in a moment in a lifetime, when he makes a shift from the concrete to the emotional. And um, we, we're being held back that, um, and so the drummer is, is waiting on us and then is offering the intro, do, 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 do. So we have it, um, similarly with Joanne Beard. I think I just redid my entire talk. <laughs> so I, I apologize. I could have done this in five minutes, apparently. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's what micro essays are about, right, Doug? Like the micro form is better when you revise a memoir down to, to three paragraphs. <laughs> Any other questions about? Cool. All right. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks. <laughs>